Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict iron jaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, a witch in your wall, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode contains wall witches, trick wishes, and risky rituals. Enter this abode and complete the salt circle behind you so we can start a ritual. We're going to be stuck here for a long time, so let's talk about some horror movies. Number 1, His House, 2020, directed by Remy Weeks. Bol and Rial are refugees from South Sudan who have been granted a home in England. Their daughter didn't survive the trip. A night witch appears to be tormenting them since Bol took something that didn't belong to him in order to eventually be granted the new home. It turns out the girl that was presented as their daughter was actually a girl Bol used to gain transport. The girl drowned after a boat all the refugees were in capsized since Bol was unable to save her. Bol slices his arm to allow the Night Witch to take his body. Rial kills the Night Witch before it can take over Bol's body. Bol and Rial are finally at peace with the ghosts that follow them. War is the killer. Whenever you're in the market to buy a house, the first thing you should do when checking out a potential home is inspect the wall for witches. We all know that. Whenever you have the house buying itch, check all the walls inside for a witch. Who didn't constantly hear this rhyme from their grandparents? Luckily enough, as long as you don't steal from or cheat someone in a way that helps you obtain a house, it should be witch-free. What's really interesting about his house is the fact that it made me feel like I should hate Bull for what he's done. But the way his journey is presented, seeing all the horror that he and Rial needed to escape, I ended up having nothing but sympathy for the man. Bull never wanted the girl he stole from her mother to use as a bartering chip to obtain transport to drown after a boat they were in that was taking them to safe haven capsize. It sounds pretty bad when you put it like that, but his house shows the atrocities that Bull and Rial were escaping. If the boat didn't capsize, there's a high chance that the girl's life with Bull and Rial would have been better than if all three of them didn't end up on the bus out of town. Most stories wouldn't allow a character like Bull redemption after what he did to survive, so it's refreshing to see him survive his house. The most famous actor in the movie is Matt Smith. He's growing on me, slowly but surely. I've never been a big fan of Doctor Who. I watched at least parts of the Christopher Eccleston and David Tennant runs. I can't remember if I finished them entirely. As a big fan of the Monster of the Week format, the show just isn't for me. Matt Smith is solid in his house, but the powerful performances come from Sope Dorisu and Wanmi Masaku, who play Bol and Rial respectively. Dorisu was definitely given the most material to work with and really shines. I said Matt Smith was the most famous actor, but that might not be the case. A familiar body shows up in his house when Bol is finally confronted by the Wall Witch. 
skinny monster covered in practical makeup that's moving strangely? That must be Javier Bote. Indeed it is. His horror credentials are stellar. When it comes to scares, his house is decently unsettling early on. The most horrifying parts of his house are the scenes depicting the atrocities that are happening in Africa. The supernatural eeriness also works, but isn't nearly as haunting. The paranormal elements are at their creepiest when the ghosts and witch aren't fully shown. When the ooky spookies are granted more screen time, the tension melts away. The designs for the ghosts of the people that died along Bol and Rial's journey are very well done. The witch's forms are mostly solid barring some questionable contact use. The white glowing ring around the pupil contacts always come off as a little silly. Not a lot of gore is shown, but Bull cutting open his arm and the witch shoving its hand into the wound look good. His House is an eye-opening horror film about the struggle to survive and the PTSD that can follow you even once you've escaped your past. It's worth a watch. Number 2, Wishmaster, 1997, directed by Robert Kurtzman. An ancient djinn is trapped inside an opal. After much time passes, a dock worker finds the opal after a drunk crane operator breaks the statue that it was encased in. The opal ends up in the possession of an appraiser named Alex. Alex has her friend Josh inspect the opal. While being inspected with lasers, the opal explodes and releases the djinn, who starts granting wishes and killing people. The djinn needs Alex to make three wishes. After her third wish, the djinn and his kind will rule everything. The djinn keeps killing people, and Alex makes two wishes. For Alex's third wish, she wishes the drunk crane operator was sober on the day the statue was being unloaded. This wish reverses everything and traps the djinn back in the opal that's back in the statue. The djinn is the killer. The drunk crane operator did kill Ted Raimi by dropping the statue on him, but that was reversed. The djinn was shown killing people before the statue incident. Wishmaster is one of the funniest horror movies I've ever seen. The movie is so goofy that I find it hard to believe it wasn't purposely created as a comedy. I guess you could classify the later installments of the Elm Street series as comedies, and Wishmaster is basically an Elm Street movie that features a djinn instead of a dream demon. In Wishmaster, there is so much bizarre delivery. What kind of direction was Robert Kurtzman providing? Did he just tell the cast to get as wacky as they could with the material? There are takes that are so strangely acted that it's puzzling that they are the takes that made it into the movie. For example, Alex foolishly wastes two wishes and ends up in her apartment. The djinn calls her and is mocking her through the answering machine, so she picks up the phone and delivers a hilariously odd F you before hanging up. You'd expect her to put all the anguish and anger from the situation she's in into the F-bomb, but it comes off as a line reading for an Adam Sandler movie background character audition. That's who she reminded me of. That guy that Shooter McGavin hires to constantly annoy Happy Gilmore. Tammy Lauren played Alex, and even though her performance is goofy at times, it's completely overshadowed by the completely bonkers performance of Andrew Divoff. He played the djinn and delivers all of his lines in a way that elicit a laugh. He's a smarmy, cheese-filled ham. This sounds like I'm dogging on his performance. I'm not. Divoff's zany performance as the djinn is what truly heightens Wishmaster to an amazing horror comedy. I was on the edge of my seat waiting for him to deliver lines, knowing that anything he said would be hilarious. 
At one point, he tricks Alex's sister into giving him her address. After obtaining it, there's a shot of him smugly rubbing his hands together over her shoulder, like a textbook cartoon villain. Speaking of villains, Robert England, Kane Hodder, and Tony Todd all have parts in the movie. They aren't villains in the movie, but horror fans will recognize them as Freddy, Jason, and Candyman. It's not a crossover of their franchises, but it's still fun to see horror icons in a movie like Wishmaster. Injecting fan-favorite horror actors into your movie isn't always the play, but when your movie isn't taking itself too seriously, it works. There's a bunch of other horror actors that make appearances in Wishmaster 2. It's a movie for horror fans. The practical effects haven't been brought up yet. Wishmaster has amazing practical effects. During the intro sequence that's set in ancient Persia, almost every other character that pops up is showcasing some kind of fantastical practical effects work. Now, the amazing practical effects in Siligore disappears for a while after the introduction, but it ends up popping up throughout the rest of the movie and really goes off the rails again at the climactic party where the djinn goes ham with wishes. Wishmaster is a goofy, fun time that's perfect for a movie night. I think I'll check out the sequels eventually. Number 3, Return to Sleepaway Camp, 2008, directed by Robert Hiltzik. A crazy, unlikable kid named Alan, who's a complete ass to everyone, is intensely bullied at summer camp. People start dying, and Alan is nowhere to be found. Turns out Angela Baker has been killing all the mean people again. Angela Baker and Michael are the killers. Michael, pet warning, killed a bunch of frogs. I can't confirm that actual frogs were killed, but the dead frogs looked real. Feels bad, man. First off, I want to thank Tom for the recommendation and providing the movie to me. Even when cool dudes recommend a movie to me, I have to give my true feelings on it. I didn't like Return to Sleepaway Camp. The main reason I didn't dig it is the fact that it is ridiculously mean-spirited. Almost every single character in the movie is straight-up despicable. The only characters that aren't completely vile human beings are a nerd and two counselors. It's alright to have a quick opening where a character is relentlessly bullied, which causes them to kill their tormentors. Two examples of movies with a bullied kid killer that works is Slaughter High and the original Sleepaway Camp. Return to Sleepaway Camp is complete chaos from beginning to end. The whole movie is people screaming obscenities at each other at the top of their lungs. Are you supposed to find the vicious bullying of Alan funny? The way things are presented, Return makes you hate Alan and the bullies. The movie tries to humanize Alan by revealing he loves frogs. We all love frogs. But that one positive trait doesn't make the character of Alan any less repulsive. Return to Sleepaway Camp is about the cycle of abuse. A ton of people dog on Alan, so in turn he dogs on the other kids, like the nerd. All the yelling and bullying that happens throughout Return just ended up stressing me out for the entire viewing. I knew that Felissa Rose was coming back as Angela, so I was able to call the twist as soon as an oddly small cop character that's covered in prosthetics started talking using an electrolarynx. It's obvious that the cop is going to be revealed to be the killer, Angela Baker, at some point in the movie. The reveal is at the very end, just like it is in the original. So even though Felissa Rose is in the movie, it feels like she's barely there because the sheriff character wasn't important at all, and Angela Baker isn't fully revealed until the last minutes of Return. 
Besides Felissa, there are other familiar faces in Return to Sleepaway Camp. Other actors that were also in the original include Paul D'Angelo and Jonathan Tiersten. Vincent Pistore of Sopranos fame plays the camp owner. Isaac Hayes plays a chef. He even wears a very similar outfit to his South Park character. Jackie Tan, who was recently in Glow, also pops up. All the acting is terrible. If only I could have been a fly on the wall of that set. I would have loved to see what direction these actors were given, if any. Is all the trash dialogue actually in the script? I'm assuming all the instances of Alan telling people their asses stink are in there. That person's ass stinks? Damn, Alan. You better flee the country. The police are on their way to arrest you for that burn. The kills are decent at least, right? For the most part, the kills are fun when they happen. A douchey cook is dunked into a deep fryer. A stoner is blown up. A dick counselor has his... Well, you know, removed from his body in a sequence that is awkwardly long. Way too much time is spent on the genital yank. A girl's head ends up wrapped in barbed wire. A jock bully gets a stake through the head. The owner ends up devoured by rats. Michael the frog skinner is skinned. Most of the kills are fun and include practical effects. The editing in Return to Sleepaway Camp is choppy and all over the place. Lots of scenes randomly fade to black earlier than you'd expect. The sound design is a complete mess. It sounded like all the layers were played at the same volume, making scenes that had yelling, a score, and a mashup of animal and insect sounds make me feel like I was having a fever dream. Return to Sleepaway Camp doesn't work. If Angela in the original acted like Alan, the series would have been dead on arrival. It's impossible to feel sympathy for Alan, it's way too mean-spirited. Skip this unless you're looking for an obnoxious time capsule of the early 2000s. Robert Hiltzik tried to recreate his original and didn't succeed. Number 4, A Dark Song, 2016, directed by Liam Gavin. A woman named Sophia rents a secluded house to be the location to summon her guardian angel. She tells Joseph, the occultist she hired to run the ritual, that she only wants to talk to her dead son. After a while, with no results, Sophia admits that she really wants her son's killers to suffer instead. Joseph falls on a knife and eventually dies. Sophia leaves the ritual area, which Joseph warned against. She keeps finding herself back at the house. What appear to be demons attack her. Sophia's guardian angel shows up, and Sophia asks her for the power to forgive. Sophia is then able to leave. Teenage occultists and supernatural clumsiness are the killers. Allegedly, teenage occultists kidnapped and killed Sophia's son. Joseph believed he fell on the knife since Sophia revealed she wanted vengeance. He lied to her about sex magic to Louis C.K. her and drowned and revived her to cleanse her soul, so he believed he fell on the knife because Sophia's ritual for vengeance started to work. I'm simplifying that to supernatural clumsiness. After watching anything for Jackson, I was hungry for more movies that include rituals and sigils. I was recommended A Dark Song a while back and had seen it on Netflix for years. I decided it was finally time to watch it. Of course it had been removed from Netflix. Curses. A Dark Song definitely scratches the ritual itch. Almost the entire movie is Sophia and Joseph working together to summon a guardian angel. During the first half, not much activity happens, which makes it seem like Joseph might be a con artist. 
But once unexplainable occurrences start happening, the movie makes sure you know that the ritual is beginning to work. A Dark Song is all about Sophia's journey from angry revenge seeker to at peace forgiver. Catherine Walker provides an amazing performance as Sophia. She was great at portraying anger, grief, and fatigue. Steve Oram is also solid as Joseph. Joseph is a strange character. He doesn't appear to be a guy who would be deeply into the occult. He looks like an average, schlubby guy. What am I saying? Normal looking people can be super into the occult. There isn't a ton of gore, but Joseph falling on the knife and Sophia pulling it out is practically done hand disturbing. Demons do end up removing one of Sophia's fingers with some bolt cutters, of all things, but the digit removal isn't nearly as yeesh inducing as the earlier knife scene. The demons look fantastically unnerving. They're shown just enough to stay mysterious and creepy. The guardian angel looks amazing. Personally, I would have preferred the angel to look more like a crazy abomination with a billion eyes, but as far as humanoid angels go, the angel looked incredible. The ritual showcased in A Dark Song is based on one named the Abramelum Operation. It's located in the book of Abramelum. I am fascinated by ancient grimoires. There has to be something to magic if there are so many weird old spell books. There's so much information about grimoires and ancient magic that every once in a while I'll dive in and look around for a bit before feeling completely overwhelmed. If anyone knows of any solid podcasts or other media that offer in-depth, digestible, interesting explanations of that kind of stuff, let me know. A Dark Song is definitely what's referred to as a slow burn horror movie. That's not to say it's a painfully boring movie until something interesting finally happens at the end. There are a few horror movies that fit that description that are referred to as slow burn movies. A Dark Song's whole journey is enthralling. The whole ritual and whether or not it's actually working sucks you in. A Dark Song is an interesting character study that also has some intriguing supernatural flavor throughout. If you have any interest in the occult or rituals, it's a must-see. If you aren't big into that type of stuff, I still think it's compelling enough to give it a shot. Number 5. Demon City Shinjuku, 1988, directed by Yoshiaki Kawajiri. A big bad named Fraggle Rock beats a dude in a fight and prepares to set demons loose upon the earth in 10 years. The dude that's defeated has a son named Kiwi. Kiwi learns that he has magical powers and is the only one that can defeat Fraggle Rock. After a trek into the heart of the city that Fraggle Rock controls, Kiwi is quickly bodied by Fraggle Rock. At the bottom of a pit, Kiwi finds his dad's old weapon which has all his magic power in it. Kiwi uses the weapon to easily dispatch Fraggle Rock. Fraggle Rock and the demons are the killers. A demon kills Chibi's pet warning two-headed dog. You also see the shadow of a cat being pulled apart by demony tentacles. Fraggle Rock? Kiwi? Chibi? What the hell are you talking about? I committed a cardinal anime sin. I watched the dubbed version of Demon City Shinjuku. <gasps> I know. I know. Unforgivable. But given that DCS was dubbed so long ago, the dub made it into a comedy. I wonder if anyone has done a deep dive into why older anime dubs were allowed to be done with no respect at all for the 
original source material. 99% of dubs before the year 2000 come off as Americans just clowning on someone else's work of art. Nowadays, we have a bridge series where people take old animes and dub them over to be comedic, but back in the day, the actual dubs were basically as ridiculous as these abridged versions. In the case of one anime called Ghost Stories, the people in charge of dubbing were told to go wild with it since it flopped so hard in Japan, and the company that made it was trying to make any money they could off it. I don't think that's the case with DCS, since, as far as I know, since Wicked City, a movie Yoshiaki Kawajiri did right before DCS, was a critical and commercial success. After watching Demon City Shinjuku dubbed, I find it hard to believe that it would be anywhere near as entertaining in the original language. The story isn't great. The movie drops you into the biggest fight scene right off the bat. That battle is the first three minutes of the movie, and it's exciting and action-packed. That's the only good fight besides Dracula, I mean Mephisto, versus the Noodle Lady, which is only about a minute long and not relevant to the plot in any way. You must be thinking to yourself, anime movie, where a random guy learns he has to become powerful to beat a big bad. There must be one hell of a climactic fight. In Demon City Shinjuku? Absolutely not. Kiwi, whose actual name I don't care to recall, approaches Fraggle Rock, who again, don't care about the real name. Fraggle Rock beats Kiwi instantly and throws him in a pit. Kiwi finds Daddy's old wooden sword in the pit, climbs out of the pit, and slices in Fraggle Rock's general direction one time. Bing, bang, boom. Fraggle Rock is defeated. Movie's over. That's it. That's the climactic battle between these two titans. The best part of the movie is when Kiwi, the president's daughter Sayaka, and a weird sewer kid named Chibi have to deal with these spirits of a bunch of dead kids in a park. The noodle lady fight scene is also pretty neat. The most action-packed insane battle should be between Fraggle Rock and Kiwi, but that fight is by far the lamest in the entire movie. Back to the dubbing. I want to believe two people dubbed the movie. I'm not going to look it up because I know that probably isn't true, but the reason I think it could be is due to the fact that there are only really two normal speaking voices. The rest of the voices are done using completely ludicrous accents, one of which is a white dude deciding that Chibi, the sewer kid, should sound like an overtly cartoon version of Cheech Marin. It was a choice for sure. I have only seen the dub, but I doubt Kiwi is dropping F-bombs every other sentence in the Japanese original version. The constant swearing is very funny given the goofy nature of the delivery. Ignoring the terrible dub and lackluster story, the art in Demon City Shinjuku is gorgeous. There's something about the late 80s, early 90s anime aesthetic that I can't get enough of. I want to say it's the sharpness of the character features back then. I definitely prefer the Nike swoosh eyes and pointed chins to the more rounded features that are in mainstream anime today. Should you watch the dub of Demon City Shinjuku? If you are looking for a comedic dub to joke about with your friends, definitely. If you're looking for a true horror anime, maybe give the subversion a go, but... 
even then, I don't think DCS is the right choice. Number 6, Undocumented, 2010, directed by Chris Peckover. A gaggle of white trust fund kids and their buddy Davey go to Mexico to join and film Davey's cousin Alberto and others as they illegally cross the border into the United States. Everyone's captured and taken to a compound run by so-called Patriots. The Patriots torture and kill people and tell the film crew all they have to do is film the activities and they will be set free. After multiple horribly executed escape attempts, only two white trust fund kids are still alive after one of the kids named Travis is tricked into beating one of his friends that was hidden in a pinata to death. Travis and Liz, the other trust fund kids still alive, finally fight back against a patriot, take his gun, grab Alberto, free some Mexican men, hop into a truck, and escape. The police are notified, they raid the compound, Alberto is deported, the media receives tapes that show the lead patriot with even more cronies who may or may not be the police. The patriots and Travis are the killers. Undocumented came out in 2010. Patriot practically means racist. Patriots just stormed the Capitol. Before I dive into this movie, I want to thank Rachel for recommending it. I didn't love it, but thank you for the recommendation. <laughs> Dang it, Josh. Why do you even ask for recommendations if you're going to trash all the recommended movies? First off, Undocumented's premise is horrifying. Racists abducting, torturing, and killing immigrants is awful. Does it actually happen? I don't know, but one thing is for sure. Detention centers are very real, and they definitely don't treat detainees well. I've brought it up before, but boy oh boy do I continue to question whether or not we, the United States, are the baddies, and it gets harder and harder to answer that question with anything but a definite yes. I don't want to be any more of a downer, so maybe someday things will get better in like 50 years. This podcast is meant to be an escape from all the real world garbage. One of my biggest issues with Undocumented was the shifting in and out of found footage mode. I think it would have been more powerful if the whole thing was done as found footage. I didn't make the connection that the writer-director Chris Peckover was the guy that did Better Watch Out, one of my least favorite horror movies of all time, until after I finished Undocumented. Once I realized this fact, it tracks. Chris is amazing at writing the most unlikable, scummy characters that he then tries to trick you into liking. He never succeeds, but he always tries. Travis, who ends up being the white savior character, is pathetic and spineless. He's introduced as a juvenile antagonist, so I have no idea why he was chosen to be the hero. Davey is the obvious choice for the hero, and he's even given a chance in the script. Davey is able to snatch a gun from a racist and hold them all at gunpoint. He's then snuck up on by a Stockholm Syndrome woman who knocks him out. It's not like a bunch of his friends were looking at him when this happened or anything. Oh wait, all of his friends were looking at him and no one warned him about the woman that was leisurely walking towards him with a baseball bat. How convenient. The writing is trash. Nothing characters do makes sense. There are multiple instances of the film crew ending up alone with one of the racists where they don't try to overpower them or anything. At first I could rationalize that, 
the film crew wasn't going to jump a guy because they had no idea how many racists were in the compound. It's quickly revealed that there are only about six racists and they aren't shown to be armed to the teeth or anything. One of which wears a face keeny. It's distracting. Sure, once Travis finally takes down one of the racists and takes his gun, the others pull out assault rifles that were never shown before the incident, but there are multiple points in the movie where the film crew outnumbered the racists in a room and could easily overpower them and take their guns. Sure, some of the crew would die if they went with the all-out assault approach, but they had a way better chance of surviving that way. Oh, tough guy who's not in the situation saying he'd rush the racists. Okay, let's say that we don't rush the racists. The group also has a chance to escape. They make it outside where there is a short fence with some barbed wire on it. Most people in the group are wearing jackets and jeans. Take off your pants and jacket and throw them over the barbed wire. You'll probably still get a few cuts, but at least you'll have a higher than 0% chance of survival. No one thinks of this, and Alberto sees his dead daughter all tangled in the barbed wire and starts screaming as you do, which alerts one friendly dog to attack a group of people. A group of people can take a dog. Oh, the dead daughter? It's not as disturbing as you're picturing, since the corpse is obviously a big doll. It looks exactly like the ones used in the new Wonder Woman movie that are slammed on the street. You'll know what I'm talking about if you watch that trash fire. I know I'm mostly attacking the plot here. I'll give some positives. Given that this is a movie where people are stripped and taken captive, I'll give kudos for there not being any sexual assault. More kudos for not having gratuitous gore. All of the disturbing gore is implied instead of shown. The performances weren't bad. The leader of the races was played by Peter Stormare. I only bring that up because I'm perplexed as to why he signed up for this project. He's not bad or anything. Paycheck's a paycheck, I suppose. I don't recommend Undocumented or anything Chris Peckover has a hand in. I did like Undocumented way more than Better Watch Out, but it's still just not something I really enjoy. Number 7, Brina's Back, Back Again. The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina Season 4 recently dropped and I devoured it. As always, it was a goofy, silly, enjoyable time. It's a junk food show. After everything that's been going on, who doesn't want to watch a Turn Your Brain Off series? Sabrina is still the selfish garbage human she's always been. Instead of asking her friends if they want to hang out with her, she creates a fake Bloody Mary ghost to force them to help her defeat it. At one point, the dead come back to life. Sabrina's dad appears, and Sabrina is told not to agitate him by telling him he's dead. So she almost instantly agitates him and tells him he's dead. You think the character would become less selfish over four seasons. You can definitely argue that her sacrificing herself at the end was selfless, but she was a selfish monster her entire life. Due to time shenanigans last season, there were two Sabrinas. At the end of season four, there are zero living Sabrinas. The first Sabrina to die is Hell Queen Sabrina, who was the better one. Wrong Sabrina died first. Given that this appears to be the last season, the creators stuck to their guns and kept the awful out of focus for no reason shots. At least they were consistent, I guess. At one point in the season, a demon king is killed. While he is dying, he does the same hilarious stock scream four times in a row. 
Whoever was in charge of adding screams this season just didn't care. There's another instance where people in a classroom are screaming and all of the most notorious stock screams are used. An alternate dimension makes an appearance which allowed the show to bring back the original Aunt Hilda and Zelda from the old TV show. Puppet Salem is also in this universe, but for some unexplicable reason, he isn't voiced by Nick Bacay. He's listed as doing the voices recently as 2019, so I have no idea why he wasn't contacted. I'm assuming he wasn't, because there's no way he would have turned it down. Melissa Joan Hart is also strangely absent. Since Sabrina has to have a boyfriend, the show decided that her and Nick get back together. It doesn't make any sense, and there is no on-screen chemistry, but whatever. Sabrina 4 is all about eldritch terrors, which is definitely an interesting concept. It was exciting to see what eldritch terror was being introduced each episode, but the later terrors end up being much less compelling than the ones toward the beginning of the season. My favorites by far were the uninvited, who rips the hearts out of anyone that doesn't show him compassion, and the weird who, well, makes things weird. The perverse is completely wasted, and the endless would have been great if the puppet Salem that personified it was voiced by Nick Bacay instead of the painfully lame Luke Cook. Luke Cook not only voiced Salem, he is also the guy that plays Lucifer in the series. Lucifer shouldn't come off as one of the least intimidating, wimpiest dudes of all time, but here we are. Like having no idea when the witching hour is, Chill Sabrina also didn't research who Dorian Gray is. Dorian Gray is killed after the uninvited rips out his heart. Oh, so what you're telling me is the uninvited rips out Dorian's heart and then Dorian stupidly goes to a secret room and looks at the painting of himself and dies. No, he just dies from the heart rip and the painting of him that is prominently on display at his bar starts bleeding as if its heart was ripped out. That's not how Dorian Gray works at all, stupid chill Sabrina. I'm not even going to bring up the cringe fest that is the Battle of the Bands. Ugh. Overall, I've had fun watching The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. It's a dumb show, but it's fun enough. I do wish a Cthulhu-esque Eldritch Terror showed up at some point, but c'est la vie. That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer 88, Wall Witches, Trick Wishes, and Risky Rituals. I hope you enjoyed it. Leave a rating or review on iTunes if you feel like it. The next episode will be out on January 24th. Until then, make sure to only wish for things in writing. Preferably in a very lengthy written out legal document that takes into account all the ways the Wishmaster can screw you over.